We're so glad you're here to listen to this week's sermon from Park Street Church. Park Street is a historic congregation located in the heart of Boston. But more than that, we're a community of people from all different backgrounds who believe and are united by the good news that Jesus is Lord. Visit us at parkstreet.org to learn about our community. Discouragement is a reality in the Christian life and on the mission of God for a lot of different reasons, uh, but I would venture to say that all of us wrestle with discouragement most of the time. It's a part of the reality of the Christian life. Often one of our main sources of discouragement is our own sluggish hearts. Lord, I I want to know you and to love you and to to be like you, but I still find myself so selfish or proud or insensitive or prayerless or greedy, or anxious, or angry, or whatever it might be. The 19th century American evangelist D.L. Moody is reported to have said that he has had more trouble with D.L. Moody than with any other man he has ever met. (laughs) And I think we can identify with that. There is that reality, and perhaps you're here and, and that's discouraging to you this morning, your own heart. Obviously, we can be discouraged by our relationships with others, and Uh, Certainly as we're on Christian mission, that that is the case often on the mission field. It's more often conflict on the mission field between partners than it is actually opposition from the cultures to which those missionaries have been sent. That's the reason for great discouragement and often coming home. And even in the local church uh, of any kind, um, we we struggle at times with relationships and conflict, and that can be very discouraging as well. I've shared this with you before, but several years ago, uh, I was having a conversation with a man who was basically called into a ministry to care for pastors in the U.S., and he had been doing this for some time, and we were having a chat, and I just asked him, I said, what's your, what's your best, or what's your most uh, clear observation from the work that you've been doing? And this is what he said to me in response. He said, Mark, after 552 hour conversations over 18 months, My most significant observation is that pastors grossly underestimate the power of the adversary to distract and discourage. And I would say if that's true of pastors, it's true really of all of us in the Christian life, that we do have an adversary. We're not in in a neutral situation as we serve Jesus. We're actually in a battle against the spiritual forces of evil, and there's an enemy that prowls around like a roaring lion trying to devour us and diminish and discourage us. Discouragement is that one of the main tactics that he uses. So we all wrestle with this. And as we finish up our series on Paul's second missionary journey in the book of Acts, and today we look at Acts 18, 1 through 17, as Paul goes into Corinth, I want us to think about encouragement and discouragement, because I do think there are some lessons for us in Paul's encounter in Corinth that I hope will encourage us. Uh, We followed Paul on this missionary journey from Philippi to Thessalonica to Berea to Athens and now to Corinth. And it's given us a realistic picture of the Christian life and the Christian mission, actually. You know, this, we would expect on a trip like this that it would be uh, wonderfully successful and full of just kind of one, from one degree of glory to the next. And the reality is, is that we see something different. I think we're, we want to expect that because it's a divinely sanctioned trip. You might remember in Acts 16 that the whole reason Paul ends up in Macedonia on this journey is because he saw a vision at night of a man saying, come over and help us from Macedonia. So this was a divinely sanctioned missionary journey, 
and, uh, if, and, and we would expect Paul to meet with great success. But what do we find actually on this journey? We find imprisonment, beatings, an angry mob seeking to kill him, um, misunderstanding, mocking, trial before authorities, and continual rejection by his own people, the Jews. So if ever there were grounds for discouragement in the, the Christian life and mission, then I would think Paul had, had them. But instead of being discouraged, he seemingly just presses ahead, undeterred, and continues to engage in the mission to which God had called him. He doesn't lose heart. And my question is how and why? And as we look at this encounter in Corinth, I hope again that we'll see some lessons here that will be helpful for our, our own lives as we wrestle with discouragement and want to continue to walk faithfully on the call that God has placed on our lives. So first, look with me at Acts 18. Uh, verses 1 and 2, God gives to Paul friendship or companionship to encourage him. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, verse 2, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them. The Roman historian Suetonius in the early 2nd century wrote uh, Lives of the Emperors, and in his life of Claudius, he said this, as the Jews were making constant disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, he banished them from Rome. Most scholars think that Crestus is a form of Christos, or Christ, and that what Suetonius is saying is that actually the people banished from Rome weren't just Jews, as he called them in his historical report, but they were actually Christians. They were those who believed in Jesus as the Messiah, and that's why they were banished. So Aquila and Priscilla were presumably already Christian believers when they came to Corinth. And as they come to Corinth, uh, Paul finds them there, probably had heard about them, their reputation had preceded him, preceded them, and, and he joins them at their home. It just so happens that they also shared a trade tent making or leather working, and they share that skill together. And so they invite Paul into their home, and they work together throughout the week. And then on the weekends, on Sabbath, Paul preaches and declares the Word of God in the synagogue sun, uh, Saturday after Saturday, Sabbath after Sabbath. So here's Paul, having just been tried before the Council of, of, of Athens the, at the Areopagus. He is now coming into Corinth, which is a city, an idolatrous city, and I'll say more about that in a moment, and he finds this Christian couple taking him in. Uh, Priscilla, or Aquila and Priscilla are a dynamite couple in the New Testament. I should say there are about 30 couples from Park Street who are on a retreat right now investing in their marriages, that they might be even more faithful and fruitful partners together in the gospel. So we give thanks for the work that they're doing up in Maine right now and for Chris and Adam who are serving there with them uh, and pray for them as they finish up their time this afternoon. Um, but we see God using this couple here, Aquila and Priscilla, to encourage the Apostle Paul. He gives, them, he gives him new companions. He also brings old companions back. Look at verse 5. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Messiah was Jesus, or the Christ was Jesus. So it's not just new companions, it's old ones as well. And what an encouragement for the Apostle Paul as he's carrying out this mission of God. Here is a provision of grace in this couple, Aquila and Priscilla and their embrace of him. We are not meant to do this Christian mission or Christian life alone. 
It's not meant to be lived in isolation. And we know, I would say almost always when we stumble and fall or when we really get to the red zone, it's almost always accompanied by isolation. That is another strategy that the enemy uses to discourage us. And here we have this picture of God's great encouragement for the apostle through companionship. Twice in the real recent past, in the last few days, I've been in conversations with people inside of our church community in tears, in prayer, because of pain and hardship that they are walking through in their lives. And in these situations, I have been so encouraged to hear them say, Mark, this church and the community of Park Street has been so important and critical to us in this time. We can't even begin to give you an idea of just how central that has been for our ability to get through what we're walking through. It's the gift of companionship, the gift of friendship. It's appropriate to make this point on a day when we welcome new members into the community and we pledge to them to pursue their good and to sacrifice for their sake. And that's what Aquila and Priscilla did for the Apostle Paul. It's what we are called to do for one another. And God uses this gift of companionship to encourage us. Two questions before we move to the next point. One is, um, who are your companions? And if you think, I don't know, then I would love to engage with you and talk with you. We would love to be a church where you can find people who will walk with you as companions to be a source of encouragement to you as you're on the mission of growing to be like Jesus and engaged in the mission of God. And maybe the second, perhaps more important question is, who is God calling you to be a companion to? Think about your life. Is there somebody around that you could step in and actually be that source of encouragement for them as they're living out the Christian life? So he gives encouragement through companionship or friendship. A second point of encouragement that we see in this encounter in Corinth is actually a fruitful mission in a dark place. Corinth was a key city in the region of Achaia. It's the third largest city in the empire behind Rome and Alexandria. Uh, it was founded in the 8th century BC, destroyed in 146 BC, and then rebuilt by Julius Caesar in 46 BC, 44 BC. So at this point, it's an exciting new and young city, about 90 to 100 years in existence when Paul arrives. One commentator refers to Corinth as the young and prosperous New York, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas of the ancient world. It's a multicultural center of wealth and entertainment and bling and rhetoric, a place of military veterans, people from lower classes, former slaves, many of whom had done well for themselves and now had wealth and sat in the upper echelons of their society. It was known for its worship of idols and for its sexual immorality. And these were brought together in the worship of Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love, whose temple on the hill housed a thousand sacred prostitutes. The verb to Corinthianize in the ancient world meant to be sexually immoral. In his 1996 book, Power Through Weakness, Timothy Savage describes the Corinthian society as marked by the following. A rugged individualism that valued self-sufficiency, wealth as the key to status within society, a self-display of one's accomplishments and possessions in order to receive praise from others, a competition for honor that viewed boasting as its natural corollary, pride in one's neighborhood as a reflection of one's social location. I mean, it doesn't sound that different from modern cities today, does it? In so many ways, these same things that we traffic in to get ahead and to, to receive honor. 
And into this dark and idolatrous place, Paul comes with the gospel of a crucified Messiah who lived, was di died on a Roman cross, was raised from the dead, and ascended to the Father's right hand. And it bears fruit. It bears fruit. Yes, Paul receives opposition and reviling. We look at verse 6, they opposed and reviled him. But at the same time, there is also a fruitful reaction to the gospel. And what an encouragement this must have been to the Apostle Paul. There's Titius Justus, who lives next door to the synagogue, who takes Paul in. There's Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, and his entire household in verse 8, who believe in the Lord. And then look at verse 8 as well, at the end of verse 8. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. What an encouragement to the Apostle in this dark city, that the gospel was going forth in power. And I don't have to probably convince many of you to remind you that when we see the power of God at work in people's lives that are changed, it is deeply, deeply encouraging to our faith. Remember the testimonies that were shared here on Easter Sunday by people who had come to say that Jesus was their Lord and their King, that he had rescued them out of darkness and brought them into light, that he was indeed Lord of their life, their Savior and their King. How encouraging that is for us to see those testimonies and to hear them. How encouraging it must have been for Paul as these many in Corinth heard the gospel and responded in faith and then were baptized and probably gave similar testimonies to the fact that Jesus was now their Lord, that they had come to believe and know that he had given them life. What a deep encouragement that is to him. Obviously, our missionaries out in the field across the world, when they write back, often they tell us stories. And I, I recently read the most recent report from the Kangs in Japan, and they tell a story about a woman in Japan who had come to have a curious interest in the faith and was open and receptive to their invitation to come to church and to hear more about who Jesus is. When we see God working in this way, it's tremendously encouraging to us as the people of God. Where is God at work? And he is at work in the hearts of people in your life even now and in the city of Boston. And that is a gift that God gives to Paul in Corinth of encouragement. But the third way of encouragement and perhaps the most central one in this text is the encouragement of a God who speaks. A God who speaks to his people. We see this so clearly in verses 9 and 10 when the Lord and that is likely to be taken as Jesus here said to Paul one night in a vision, and I'll come to those words in a moment. But the Lord speaks to his servants. And this is our deepest source of encouragement in the Christian life and on Christian mission. God speaks in a few ways, and I want to lay them out just carefully. But the first way is he speaks in the, tr in the truth and power of the gospel of the reality of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension that is the heart of our message to the world and the heart of what changes the world. This God who spoke to Paul that night in a vision is the same God who spoke loudly and clearly in the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh. And this gospel speaks unambiguously of the power of God and the love of God for the people that he has made in his image. We lost one of the great ones on Friday, Tim Keller, a faithful minister of the gospel for the last several decades of his life in Manhattan, and a gifted preacher, teacher, and writer who had an influence on my life and no doubt countless other ministers throughout this nation and the world. And we praise God for the way in which he died well on Friday, 
in the presence of his family, and he is now with Jesus. Keller's summation of the gospel is simple, and it's this. We are more sinful and flawed than we ever dared believe, yet more loved and accepted in Jesus than we ever dared hope. What this means is at the center of the God who speaks through in and through the gospel is there is this message that we are more loved than we ever dared hope to hope. I don't know what you think about God, what you think about the meaning of life, the universe, anything else that you're wrestling with, but I do want you to know that this God has spoken unambiguously in his son Jesus Christ with a message that says you are loved and valued. And that's at the heart of the good news that we have to proclaim. By the, that's also at the heart of the good news that you and I live into day by day by day as we're seeking to become more like Jesus and to join God on this mission. You are loved and you are valued. God has spoken loudly and clearly about this. And you are loved and valued by a God who has sent his son into the world to die on your behalf, to be raised from the dead, and then to ascend to the Father's right hand. And this is a part of that gospel message is that Jesus is on the throne. Thursday was Ascension Day. It was the day that we remember that after his resurrection, Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, where he now sits on the throne of the cosmos and rules and reigns as sovereign king over your life and over all the world. And that's a tremendous source of encouragement as a dimension of this gospel reality to us, whatever it is that we are encountering. A couple years ago when Keller tweeted about his cancer, this was in December of 2021, he tweeted this message, I have stage four pancreatic cancer, but it is endlessly comforting to have a God who is both infinitely more wise and more loving than I am. He has plenty of good reasons for everything he does and allows that I cannot know, and therein is my hope and strength. He says that out of the heart of the, of, of the gospel message that Jesus is king and good and loving, and he can face this terrible cancer with a sense of comfort, which is another way of saying encouragement because of what God has declared about himself in the gospel. Martin Luther, the great reformer, wrote a letter to his father, John, on February 15, 1530. His father was, uh, had a grave illness from which he would die, actually just a few months later after Martin Luther wrote this letter. And this is what Luther writes. Luther, of course, who knew the power of God speaking in the gospel. This is what he says to his dad. Let your heart be strong and at ease in your trouble. For we have yonder a true mediator with God, Jesus Christ, who has overcome death and sin for us, and now sits in heaven with all his angels, looking down on us and awaiting us, so that when we set out, we need have no fear or care, lest we should sink and fall to the ground. He has such great power over sin and death that they cannot harm us, and he is so heartily true and kind that he cannot and will not forsake us. That's encouragement from the gospel. That's encouragement from the truth that God has spoken in Jesus. But God has also spoken not only in the gospel, but also in the scriptures, in the biblical word. These scriptures are God's word breathed out, inspired by his spirit, and they're available and accessible to us at all times to take encouragement from. One of my mentors in the pastoral ministry is dying of pancreatic cancer right now at the age of 69. 
the same cancer that took Tim Keller on Friday at the age of 72. Keller got about three years after diagnosis, and I think my friend will get three to four months after diagnosis. We spoke for about 30 minutes on Thursday. Just wanted to check in with him, and I asked him what was on his mind as he was going through this trial. And through his weakening voice, he said that his mind is filled with the Word of God all the day long. The Word of God just keeps reverberating around his mind and his heart and is an encouragement to him as he lies there in pain, awaiting the day when he will see his Lord face to face. He took me in that call to 2 Corinthians 4 and started to just preach to me on the phone, which was the best sermon I've heard in a long time from a man with that kind of clarity. But he took me to these words, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction. And then he stopped and he talked a little bit about his own trial, but he said, Mark, remember who wrote that? That was the apostle Paul who had been beaten and stoned and imprisoned and shipwrecked and felt sleepless nights and hunger and thirst. And he said, what I'm going through doesn't even compare. And Paul says this light and momentary affliction is achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. The word of God in the scriptures encourages the people of God deeply for God speaks to us through it. He speaks in the gospel. He speaks in the scriptures. And then sometimes he just speaks directly to us. And that's what we see here in the Apostle Paul's experience in Corinth. So let's go to verses 9 and 10. The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, and what did he say? And I want you to hear these words, especially if you're wrestling with discouragement. Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. Talk about encouragement. Paul gets to hear the voice of his Lord, the one he had met on the Damascus Road, telling him, do not be afraid. Keep witnessing, Paul. Keep going. Step into this mission. Continue to be transformed. Continue to share the hope that you have in Jesus for life. Continue to share whatever may come. Keep speaking and do not be silent. And then he gives the grounds, for I am with you. No one will attack you to harm you. And I have many people in this city, and many in the city who are my people. Could there be any greater word of encouragement than the word that the divine being who created everything is with you? Do you remember what he said to Joshua before he faces the challenge going in to Canaan in Joshua 1? Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Do you remember the fear in Elisha's young servant's heart and mind when he looked out the window and saw the Syrian king and the army of Syria surrounding them and he's panicked and he runs to Elisha and he says, look, Elisha, what are we going to do? And Elisha's response is this, do not be afraid. 
for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. The Lord is with you. The confidence of David before the shepherd boy, before the giant Goliath, was a confidence rooted in the fact that the Lord was with him. And the one who had delivered him from the, the lion and the bear would deliver him from this Philistine as well because of the Lord's presence. And David would go on to write, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The great encouragement of the words that God speaks to his servant Paul is this encouragement of his presence. I am with you. And what do we hear from our Lord and King before he ascends to the throne at the Father's right hand? After he's called us and commissioned us to be on mission to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you and baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. This is Matthew 28. And then he says, and behold, remember, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So don't be afraid. Be encouraged. He says something else to Paul. He says, for I have many in this city who are my people. And this is a great encouragement to those of us on the mission of God, that God has gone before us, that there is a, a, a call of God that kind of supersedes our efforts and ingenuity and attempts at bearing witness to him that God has many in the city of Corinth. That is an encouragement to Paul. God has many in the city of Boston that should be an encouragement to us. J.I. Packer wrote a little book in 1961 called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. And in chapter two of that little book, he wrestles with the two biblical doctrines of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And he says, we must uphold both of these doctrines that the Bible teaches so clearly. It doesn't back off of either of them, and neither should we. And then he tells the story of someone going to Charles Spurgeon, the great 19th century preacher in London, and asking him how he could reconcile these two biblical doctrines. And Spurgeon's response was, I wouldn't try. I never reconcile friends. And what an encouragement that the Lord of glory has gone before us into the hearts of people. I'm sure many of you have had that experience. I know that I have when we sit down with someone and it's as if the work has already been done. God has opened the heart to draw people to himself. What an encouragement as we carry forward on the mission of God in the name of Jesus. And then the last thing that he says, I took these in different order. I got first and third, but the middle thing that he says in verse 10 is no one will attack you to harm you. I do think this is a specific word for Paul in this specific moment in context in Corinth. Because actually, if we look at verses 12 through 17, what we find is the Jews unite in an attack on Paul, and they bring him before Gallio, the proconsul of Achaia, the highest-ranking official. This was actually the brother of Seneca, uh, the great philosopher in ancient Rome, and he is delivered. Gallio doesn't bring any doesn't sustain any of these charges, and Paul is set free. So I think in this case, Paul, uh, God is specifically making a promise to Paul that in Corinth, no one will attack you or harm you. But I say it's a specific case because obviously, if we look at Paul's missionary life, it was filled by challenges and hardships and harm and attacks. What does God say to Ananias in Acts chapter 9 when Paul is converted on the Damascus Road? 
Ananias says, look, I don't want to go talk to that guy. He has authority to hurt the church. And Jesus says to him, no, I want you to go tell him, for I, will have to, I, want, I want to share with him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And the reality is, is that many of us, as we walk through life, whether it's because of the general brokenness of the world and the suffering that we encounter in that sense, or it's because of our fidelity to the call to bear the cross, the cross is a mark, it's a symbol of suffering and trial, and it's the shape of the Christian life under Jesus as King, that we will encounter hardship and trial by living the life of love. And yet, the encouragement here is the encouragement of do not be afraid. I am with you. Do not be afraid. I am with you. God, whether he will defend and protect us from every harm and attack, he did not for Paul. He did here in Corinth. He did not in other places. He may for some of us, and he may not for others. We do not understand. I go back to the Keller quote about the fact that God has reasons we don't understand. What a comfort it is to trust him in our trials. But whatever the trials may be, whatever the source of discouragement may be for you today, I want you to know God will never be unfaithful. God will never leave you nor forsake you. God is with you now and to the end of the age. And God will see to it that you will be fully restored, robust, glorious, renewed in the new heavens and the new earth and sharing in his glory as you reign with Christ in that new place. Do not be afraid. He is with us, and he will never leave us. Friendship, the fruit of mission, and above all, the word of God, who speaks to encourage us as his people as we seek to be faithful to him and his mission. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, which is a great encouragement. Please. Drive it deep into our bones. The message of the gospel. God, we thank you for the witness of Tim Keller and how much of an impact you made through him. We thank you for his humility, but we thank you for his laser focus on the good news of the gospel. The reality that you indeed do love us more than we could ever hope. God, we thank you for this word that you gave to the apostle one night in Corinth. And we pray that it would be a word for each one of us today, not to be afraid, to keep on speaking, not to be silent, because you are with us. We celebrate and give thanks for your presence. May you make it more and more tangible to us even today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.